0: Hey, Holly here. Before we dive into this week's episode, I wanted to share some information with you about some workshops that we're running. Here at Aeshaur Product Science, we love to teach workshops, both public workshops, private workshops at companies, and even an online workshop for people who can't come to see us in person. If you're interested in learning how to identify the right products and features to build and how to develop the support to do so with the Product Science Method, come and join us. You can learn more at asureproductscience.com workshops. Welcome to the Product Science Podcast, where we're helping startup founders and product leaders build high growth products, teams, and companies through real conversations with people who have tried it and aren't afraid to share lessons learned from their failures along the way. I'm your host, Holly Hester Riley, founder and CEO of H2R Product Science. This week on the Product Science Podcast, I'm excited to share a conversation with JJ Rory. JJ is faculty at Johns Hopkins University, teaching undergraduate and graduate-level product management courses. She is the author of Immutable, Five Truths of Great Product Managers, and is Chief Executive Officer of Great Product Management. JJ is a sought-after speaker, advisor, trainer, and coach, having worked with some of the world's largest companies, and she also hosts the podcast, Product Voices. Welcome, JJ. Thank you, Holly. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited to finally have this conversation with you.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: So tell me a bit about how you got into product.
1: Yeah, so my first foray into product management is kind of funny. Like a lot of people, I just kind of happened into it, found myself into it. So I was working, gosh, this has been close to 15, 16, 17 years ago, a long time, working at a law firm in Fort Lauderdale, Florida in marketing so totally random, right? And so I was doing marketing for this law firm, and the main partner had an idea for a software product. He was a very eccentric, brilliant man, (laughs) but kind of way out there. And he had this idea for software product, for law firms, for healthcare clients. It was a firm that did malpractice insurance cases and that sort of thing. And so they worked with hospitals, healthcare systems. So software product was going to manage Legal cases. Okay, great. So he comes to me, 20 something year old in marketing, and says, Hey, you want to build a product with me? (laughs) And I'm like, Yeah, let's do it. So this, you know, know nothing Uh me and the know nothing, you know, in terms of product management partner, build a product together. So we found someone to write the code and do all that kind of stuff. And it was fun. We actually did it. And looking back Mm -hmm. on it, I realized how ridiculous some of the things we did were. And then I also did some things right. You know, I I got voice of customer. I didn't call it that, but you know, went out and talked to people. So it was Mm -hmm. fun. So from there, I realized that, hey, this is cool. I didn't even at the point know there was this profession called product management. But after that kind of got into formal product manager roles, learned the craft and took it from there. But yeah, it was kind of fun to realize that you could build something Thing and have fun at it.
0: What were some of the mistakes that you made that you're now like, gosh, I would tell myself not to do that?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it was, first of all, we tried to define everything up front. And so it took us like a year oh, gosh. to just, again, write requirements. I didn't call it that because I didn't know it was that or user stories or whatever. And we tried to do the most ridiculous things. It was so old school and wrong. <laughs> so we did that. We didn't get enough feedback. We talked to customers, but then we would go back try to build something and then didn't go back and validate anything. Mm -hmm. So we had no idea what we were doing there. We didn't have a clue about competitive research and market research and pricing and how we did all of that. So we just like threw things at the wall. And the fun part was we built something, Mm -hmm. which, eh, you know, wasn't that great because of all of those reasons I just mentioned. But then we would like jump on his private plane and go talk to hospitals all over the country. So- Oh, wow! Again. for a twenty something year old marketing person who had no clue what she was doing, it was a fun experience. <laughs> yeah, that sounds fun. It just wasn't the best product, but it was fun to look back on it and think it was kind of interesting to do it that way because we had like the beginner's mind, mm-hmm. and then you can point out of all of the silly things that we did too. So it's cool to look back at that.
0: Absolutely. That's interesting. So I had a similar, I guess, at first experience with my first startup that I was a part of where there's a lot of things that it's like, gosh, nowadays, I would just be like, you need a coach. <laughs> yeah. What were you doing? <laughs> well, we were building a lot without putting it in front of customers and same sort of deal. We talked to people and we were inspired by people, but then we would build and we thought we needed to be in stealth mode. Yeah. So We didn't actually show what we built to anybody for over a year. And in retrospect, I'm like, well, what were we thinking? Yeah. And I remember I went to like a event at my alma mater for founders and entrepreneurs. And I met somebody there who was like an early adopter of Lean Startup and was basically like, you're doing it all wrong. Like you need to be talking to customers like every day, like put it right in front of them. And I remember just being like, oh my God, I've been doing it all wrong.
1: (laughs) Right? (laughs) I still do that. I've been doing it 20 years now, and I still wake up and say, Oh my God, I think I'm doing it wrong. So, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So,
0: what were some of the highlights since then? Like, what are some of your favorite
1: companies that you've worked at? Yeah. So, from there, I kind of went into a real product manager role, as I said. And that was at a company called First Data, which is a big global payment processor, now called Fisurf, because they merged with Fiserv, I don't know, several years ago. And so now they're under the Fiserv brand. But I really learned the craft there. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, again, this was in the early 2000s-ish, 2006, 2007, 2008, something like that. And so, you know, it was still a little in tech years. That was, you know, 100 years ago. And so, yeah. you know, it was still a little bureaucratic. And the processes we used were what we would call now out of date. But at the time, it was a great place to learn the craft. You've got some really smart people. You've got passionate people. And the payment space at that point was a really interesting, evolving space. And so we had some really innovative things and like mobile payments was not a thing back then. And so we were working on that and doing some really fun stuff. And so that's where I kind of learned the craft and moved up and ended up leading a global product team there. And from there, had a startup for a while, moved around, did some consulting, then went and led product at the American Hospital Association, which was a totally different environment. So, kind of services based and membership based organization. We had some data products. We had some media products. And so, really got to learn a lot about different types of products and different types of industries, if you will, and user bases in that role. And then, been consulting and advising for now, gosh, five or six years at least. And that's been amazing because I've gotten to see numerous industries everything from logistics and travel to pure software to military equipment and kind of everything in between. And so, it's been interesting to see the various cultures of product teams, depending on the product and the industry, and also some of the processes, some of the ways that they focus in different ways, depending on what they're building.
0: Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of gems in there. I'd love to go back to one of the earlier things you said there was about a global product team at First Data. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about that. What was that team structure like?
1: Yeah. So we were the product team building data and analytics products for the financial services Side of the business. So if you think of a kind of a consumer payment, you've got the retail or wherever you're buying something, and then the bank or whoever owns your card, right, or issued your card. And so we were in the business unit on financial services. So we worked with banks a lot. And so the products that we built were basically a byproduct of all of that. Payment data, all that consumer behavior data. And so we would build loyalty and marketing products. We would build fraud products and risk products to make sure that whoever was using that payment vehicle was actually the person who was supposed to be. So, really kind of cool products that we built. And we were structured somewhat traditionally. We had North America we actually had Latin America as well. And so we had folks in an APAC, of course. And so we had folks all over the world. And again, not quite the same as it is today, because there weren't all the technologies of the remote world. Now, of course they existed. And we all obviously had lots of virtual meetings, but we had meetings at times where the folks were calling in on a conference call, like literally on a conference call. And then we would have some video meetings as well. But those weren't the same as today. You didn't just click a button and jump on a video call. Now, again, I'm not a thousand. Years old, so it wasn't that bad, but it was not today. (laughs) So, we had to do a lot of things of team building and making sure that everybody understood that we were one team, even though you were working literally in different parts of the world and often never met your team in person, never worked on projects with them. And so, as a leader, that was the hardest part, and frankly, the most fun part to me was to think of ways that we could kind of all bond and kind of get together and work towards one mission.
0: Yeah, that, you know, sends me back. It reminds me of that same first startup buying webcams for everybody. Yeah. And buying them all headsets and shipping them to them and being like, we're globally distributed. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And we're so cool. Look at us. Yeah, exactly. Look at us. We're getting on video calls. Sorcery. Exactly. (laughs) It's like magic. So were there any things that you did back then that you would look back on and say, wow, what a mistake?
1: (laughs) Yeah. So there was one big project we were working on. And I was, again, it was under my team, but because it was such a big visible product, I was actually leading it. So I was kind of the product manager on this project in addition to being the leader of the team. And it was this idea to take all of the data from All of these payments that we processed. And so, again, we at that time processed like a trillion dollars a year of transactions. I mean, just a ton, billions, literally billions of payment transactions. And so, as you can imagine, there's a lot of interesting data there. There's a lot of interesting consumer behavior data. And so the idea was to take all of that data and combine it and use it for things to show certain behaviors and to help banks and others understand how they could better serve their customers, right? Well, it's a great idea and we ran with it. It was the kind of quintessential, hey, this is awesome, light bulb moment, let's just start building or at least start organizing. And so we built decks and we did research and we did all of the stuff. We literally resourced a team and I mean, just did a ton of internal work and talked to some clients which on the very surface, they thought it was an interesting idea. But when it came right down to it, here was the problem. Each bank owns their data. First Data did not own the data. It was the bank's data. It was the customer's data. And so they had to agree legally to combine their data with other banks' data. Well, no one's going to do that for legal reasons, for competitive reasons. And that's a big hurdle. (laughs) It ended the whole project, basically. Yeah, And so it's like you look back on that and you're like, how did you not ask that first or figure that out first, right? Before you start jumping in on this exciting, shiny object. And so looking back, that's one of the learnings that I've taken is that, okay, look, yes, you know, you don't have to be a negative Nelly and always look at the things that can go wrong. That's one of the problems that we do is we always kind of jump in, or at least some people jump in and say, no, that that can't work. Let's move to something else. Right. But you should look at the realistic Hurdles. (laughs) Yes. Right. Is this feasible or not? Probably not. Let's move on to something else. And so it's funny now, but it's like, how? How did you not do this? I mean, because there were a lot of leaders and a lot of smart people thinking this is a great idea. Let's do it.
0: Yeah. Didn't work so well. That's interesting because I came across a Twitter thread recently where someone was talking about being involved in several public failures and talked exactly about that, about that there being like a core assumption. Mm -hmm. that is wrong. And that, you know, becomes the elephant in the room that everyone just like somehow thinks that it's going to be overcome, but like it never is. And then, you know, at the end of the day, that not being right means the whole product can't succeed. And I guess I'm curious, you know, having been through that, what tactics or strategies have you come up with since then to try to keep that from happening again?
1: Yeah. So you're exactly right. It's it's assumption. It's the assumptions that we're making. And we work on assumptions in product management. That's just how it is. We make predictions and there are very few things that are absolutely set in stone and kind of black and white. True. And so it's all about mapping your assumptions and naming those assumptions and not taking anything for granted. And so that example is huge assumption is that each of the banks are going to share their payment data in a way that allows this to happen. The fact that we just brushed over that assumption and didn't talk about it and didn't kind of dig into it was the death of that project. So every assumption, big and small, map those out from the beginning. I've got something that I call a hypothesis canvas that I use that allows us to name those hypotheses or assumptions. And then as we're going through our research, literally document what proves it and disproves it. Because we so often have confirmation bias that, oh, I heard this. It proves it. It proves it. It proves it. Well, guess what? We're interpreting that a certain way. And so to actively try to disprove your assumption or disprove your hypothesis is actually a good practice to avoid some of those mistakes. And so that's what I try to do is just be as open as possible about the assumptions and hypotheses. Use that canvas to try and disprove things. And then just kind of go through an exercise and try to name out everything that could go wrong. When we're looking at a new project or a new product, we're so excited about it, we think about all the ways it could go right. But if we flip that around and say, let's think of all of the things that could derail this project or could make this go wrong, that way it opens our eyes a little bit to some of those things.
0: Yeah, I love that. A practice that I do as well. I think it's so valuable to open up that conversation. What kind of experiences have you had with teams engaging in that conversation? Like how willing to talk about all the ways it could go wrong have the teams you've worked with been?
1: Yeah. So it depends on the culture. Like I remember some of the teams, I look back on it and it seems very negative. And I don't think that it necessarily was, but the culture was to very much look at what could go wrong and how we couldn't do it. It was almost like we were trying to talk ourselves out of doing something always. That was our default, which is totally different than a lot of cultures, which is kind of always talking our way into something or always kind of confirming that we want to do something. And so it depends on kind of the culture of the organization. Like this will never work or this could never possibly fail, probably somewhere in between there. And so the teams that are more on the this could never work actually ended up identifying some of those risks earlier, right, in the process. And so, yes, you had to sometimes as a product manager or product leader, you had to use your influence skills and your communication skills to get them over the negative hump once we decided that it was something to go forward with, because then you've got to excite them. People who are kind of naturally negative and are looking at the bad side. But from a risk perspective, it actually really helped to identify some of those. And then I've worked with teams, both on my own teams and then as an advisor, that they have a really hard time identifying what could go wrong. And I find that very interesting because, again, they're just so positive, which is a great thing in theory. But you really have to force them to think of all of the things that could go wrong. And so the best way that I've found is to have a cross-functional team. So don't just have a few product managers or don't just have a you as a product manager and a few engineers have marketing folks and finance folks and sales, if you've got a sales group and engineers and various parts of the engineering group, if possible. And even a few product managers that aren't necessarily working on this product, but they have adjacent roles and they can see perspectives or they have perspectives that may bring something in. So cross-functional teams are usually the way that regardless of the culture of the organization, you can actually bring some things to light if you've got different perspectives.
0: Yeah. It's so important to have those different perspectives in the room. And in particular, one thing that struck me with what you just said is about bringing in other product managers who might be in adjacent areas. I've seen a lot of organizations where product managers themselves end up pretty siloed from each other and you know everyone's running really hard and they barely have time to stop and help each other. And I guess I'm curious to hear from you about, is that something you've encountered as well? And how have you gotten over that? How did you get those product managers to come and be a part of those risk discussions?
1: Yeah. So again, every product manager, like you said, is just kind of running their own show. And so they don't often have the time to take their heads up out of that to do something. And so it depends or it helps a lot if the leadership is kind of setting the stage for that. And so a couple of things that I did as a leader, I don't think I really had the foresight to do it as a product manager. But once I became a leader and kind of realized that these things were important. Number one, I always made sure that we as a team spent time together. And so whether it was weekly product team meetings or what have you, where we all talked about what we were doing, because, again, literally some projects and some work streams are completely blind to other product managers. And so during those meetings, we would talk about the projects, the work that we were doing, and very intentionally try to find ways that they mapped to each other or there were learnings from one product manager to the other oh, that happened to you? Yeah, that happened to me on my last release and this is what we did about it. And so, you know, very intentionally set up those cross product manager conversations. But in terms of actually being involved in other projects, you know, again, as a leader, I tried to encourage that. And say a product manager is not going to be in another product manager's entire work stream. But if they're having some upfront design sessions or they're having some upfront risk assumption sessions, pulling someone in and encouraging a product manager to ask another product manager to come in and sit and provide feedback. That's what I always did as a leader. So what I would suggest is, I mean, even if you're not a leader, you're listening and you're a product manager, just ask. Just ask if somebody can do that and try to set that up. You can kind of amend the culture of your team by literally just asking someone to do something differently. They'll show that it works and they'll frankly enjoy it because as a product manager, they kind of like getting out of their day-to-day world for a minute and having the ability to just think about other things and provide perspectives. So even if you're not a leader that can do it from the top down as a product manager, you can always just ask your peers and create that kind of environment on your own. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really valuable
0: point that as a product manager, you don't have to wait for your product leader to make things happen.
1: You can go out and make things happen even where you're at. Exactly. And one of the things I encourage all the teams that I work with is to create this community of product managers. And even if it's not something formal, if the 20 product managers that work in that company want to set up a monthly lunch and learn or a coffee or whatever it is, just do it. Just talk about a book or talk about a podcast or talk about your projects or whatever, and just do it. I mean, those product managers in your community are bevy of wisdom and we all should learn from each other.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Hey, so I'm going to interrupt us here for our first ever sponsor. It's Product Board, a software for product managers. I'm going to share throughout the season different conversations that I've had with product managers at Product Board so you can hear a bit about how they handle product discovery, road mapping, product strategy, and more. Our first interview is with Sophie Lalonde, a group product manager at Product Board. We introduced her to you in a previous episode, and now we're going to share a conversation about a product decision she was involved in.
2: My name is Sophie, been in product for I think a bit over five years now. Can you walk me through
0: a product decision and how that product decision gets made inside ProductBoard?
2: So the product decision I wanted to chat about is I think something that a group PM or a mid-level PM faces quite often, which is you want to be focusing on the problems and jobs to be done or challenges rather than the solutions. But sometimes for the executive team to understand what you are trying to propose, you actually need to have it in solution form. I think about a year and a half ago, we were trying to figure out, we knew customer centricity is very hallmark to product boards differentiation, and we wanted to double down there. It was really important for us to keep providing our core base ability to be customer centric and to make customer centricity more approachable. But it's not like you can go and just say, okay, so... That's what we're going to tackle. You need a bit more green light on something that makes tangible sense. And so what we did is we worked with the designer and just said, we're going to do a short sprint on a possible solution to get to the problem that we've seen, which is closing the feedback loop and being able to get up to speed on a customer within, let's say, call it like five minutes. So we came up with a solution and we presented it to the executives and we decided to go forward with what we call the customer board. And I think that we wouldn't necessarily have gotten that sign-off if we weren't able to just dedicate a three-week sprint to finding a solution. But that wasn't the end. Once we came up with that and we got the green light, it was like, okay, now we need to go back to the drawing board of the problems. Which problem do we want to solve first? Do we want to solve this idea of getting up to speed on customer context, which is more helping our core persona, the product manager? Or do we want to focus on closing the feedback loop? And so it's this interesting nuance of constantly being able to do the double diamond approach of trying to find the problem and trying to find the solution over and over again and being comfortable without full information of presenting a solution.
0: So now we know the context of the problem Sophie was thinking about solving and the decision she faced. Look to future episodes to hear how she made the decision and what happened. But for now, back to our main interview. So you had a long list of different like industries and types of companies that you've worked with. Did you have any experiences where you got in somewhere and you thought, not necessarily that you had seen it all, but like you thought you kind of knew what you were getting into and then it turned out that something about this company or this industry was just like really surprising and different?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, even though I had seen a lot of kind of longer span product development cycles and physical products and that sort of thing, when I started working in industries like The military or providers for military equipment or, you know, services or what have you, especially kind of physical or digital products. I was really surprised or I don't know why I was surprised, but I was that they by contract often can't change the product that they sell to a government entity for years and years and years. They literally can't even do different releases in some cases. And so think about that for a second. So you launch a product. Let's say it's a physical product, a piece of equipment or something, and you can't do a new version over the next two years. You've signed a contract with a government entity and they can't change anything about it, which is so fascinating. Now, this, of course, is not for every product out there, but a lot of products are that way. And so what that means is, number one, you probably as a product manager got about, you know, six to 10 clients, period, ever. And you're never going to have more than that because those are the governments, those are the military, those are your markets. Which is really interesting and totally different than some consumer software product, for example. So the other thing is, what does that mean for innovation and what we think about as improving our products? And so it's kind of always finding services around it or it's finding net new products. And so that was a very interesting dynamic. And of course, it's just one niche market, but it's very interesting to think about that because we as product managers don't think about putting something out and not touching it for 10 years and literally not being able to touch it for 10 years. And so that one was a really interesting kind of learning for me. And so what we had to do as product teams when coaching them was to think about all the other ways that we could add value to that customer in addition to that. And so they had to be really good at understanding customer problems and all of the nuances around the problem because you obviously could get complacent <laughs> if you were in that environment. And so we tried to avoid that. So that one was a really interesting eye-opening experience.
0: Yeah. That makes me think back to one of my own early experiences was I studied chemical engineering and I worked as an environmental engineer and I worked for the city of New York and we had a big software project and just watching that whole process of how the government contracts a private company to build software and how the format of government contracting dictated essentially a waterfall process. And it was shit. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And I just remember being like,
1: "Oh, this is really a crash course in what not to do. Right? Right. But like you said, it was dictated that way. If you're going to do business with that entity, you have to do it that way or some model that looks like that. And it's just interesting. And it's not what we tend to think about modern product management today, but there's still a lot of those pockets out there. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: There's a lot of organizations that have those kinds of constraints. And I think I have occasionally come across someone from the agile or lean community who's working with governments and trying to innovate in the process of the contract itself so that there can be lean and agile. And that's sort of a whole area that I think a lot of us just like don't pay attention to.
1: Yeah, absolutely. To give another example, I have this, I'm sure the same conversations that you have with folks, which is a lot of product managers and a lot of people who want to be better in their products like executives, et cetera. They think Agile is the only way to go. And first of all, Agile is huge and convoluted and we all need to improve it in our own organization. But the truth is there are some situations where a more heavy due diligence is needed. It doesn't mean that the whole process has to be old school waterfall, but medical devices, for example. Medical devices have to be approved. The design has to be approved by the FDA in the US or other regulatory body, depending on the country you're in. And so once that design is finalized and approved, the team's not going to go back and iterate on that because if they do, they've got to go back into the approval process, which can take years. And so there's a point where, depending on the risk of the situation and what you're building, there's a point where, true, iterative, ongoing changes of a product, it's just not feasible. And so I try to get people to understand that, sure, if you're building just a purely software product, go for it, do your thing. But a lot of folks aren't building those types of products. And there's still a world out there that needs a little bit more due diligence and a little bit more de-risking, even while trying to use some of the concepts of agile, lean, et cetera.
0: Yeah, absolutely. What about, I guess, within different company types? Like, have you found there were times where you, I don't know if it was went to a really big company from being in small ones or vice versa, but like where the structure of the company itself was surprising and constraining?
1: You know, I think the big companies tend to be more constrained by processes and approvals and that sort of thing. Of course, that's a generalization, but I think it generally holds true. You know, there's just more at stake. And so ironically, there's really less at stake if you look at product line versus their entire company. Whereas a startup, literally the entire company is at stake. But in their minds, there's more at stake. They think they have to be more buttoned up and they have to have more diligence around their processes. And even if it's agile. And so I think that a lot of times there's I'll do training or advising with big company and there's hundreds of product managers. And that's awesome that they've got that kind of infrastructure, but it makes it harder for everybody to have consistency around their thought process and the consistency around the way they're doing things. And so one product manager, one product team does things one way and another does it a completely different way. Now, there's nothing wrong with that on its surface if the inconsistencies are the elements you're vetting ideas against, prioritizing against, making decisions on. then sometimes you kind of get convoluted. And so the complexities of big organizations, I think, still impacts product management the way that they can succeed. On the other end, I work with like startups and their issue, again, generalizing. But a lot of times startups issues is that you've got a CEO or founder group who have a vision. And there's not really a need or the desire to have product folks then create their own vision. And so the disconnect there or the difficulty there is having product folks who by nature are problem solvers, are critical thinkers, curious beings, just kind of be executors and taskmasters of somebody else's vision. And so you tend to have a more free flowing culture in startups, which is helpful, but At the end of the day, the work often is very kind of task-driven and just executing on somebody else's vision. And that's not always the best environment for product managers. So it's just interesting to be able to go into both sizes of companies and see the difference. And I think both of them can learn from each other, big companies and small companies, but it's hard to make yourself embed those learnings in an environment that doesn't look like a giant company, for example, or a startup. You hear lots of big companies say, we're going to carve off this little group and they're going to be a startup within our big company. Well, that's a start, but it doesn't always work that way. Yeah, absolutely.
0: That's a whole nother topic, I think. But one thing that I'm thinking about as I'm talking to you is I can see behind you your book and I want to know more about how you came to
1: write a book. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. So the book's called Immutable, Five Truths of Great Product Managers. And I actually went through several iterations of what the book was going to end up being about. And at first I thought it would be about all kind of front end customer discovery. And then I realized that. There are a lot of people that do that and do it really well and have some amazing content out there. And honestly, that problem didn't need to be solved, in my opinion. And I didn't think I was the person to solve it, which I think is a good product lesson. Does your customer problem exist? Are there alternatives out there that are better than what you could position yourself at? And so then actually interesting talking about the kind of different industries. One of the ideas for a book was to differentiate kind of software versus non-software product. I still think there's a gap in content there, but what ended up kind of piquing my interest mostly was it also kind of stemmed from working across different industries and companies was that I saw what looked like successful, happy, frankly, just the folks who navigated the product manager role well and tended to not be the folks who got overwhelmed of course, we all get overwhelmed at times, but the folks who just seem to navigate the role more easily and more efficiently, I ended up calling them great product managers. And I define that in a specific way, but the folks who seemed to succeed in the role. And I wanted to do some research and find, okay, what is it? Like, what is it across those? Because again, it looked like someone could be successful building military equipment or building software. And so I wanted to see if there were commonalities across those folks. And that was my hypothesis going in was that there were a set of skills that any great product manager had, regardless of industry, regardless of anything in their background, et cetera. And that's how the book came about. And so ultimately, I define these five immutable truths of great product managers. And they're things that we all know about, but ultimately working together, they kind of form this foundation or anchor that everything else is built upon for a product manager. So the five things are customer intelligence, just really digging deep and having a high level of customer intelligence, building relationships, great product managers just do that well. They're master communicators, They have uncommonly good judgment and they're fanatical about prioritization. Again, I'm not the first person to say any of those things, but they're so foundational to what we do. Like I yet have seen a great product manager who doesn't have a fairly high skill level on those five things. And so I wanted to kind of take it back to the basics and make it simple and say, yes, there are other things we've got to learn to be good at product management. We've got to have a technical acumen, financial acumen, et cetera, frameworks and how to do certain things. But at the end of the day, this is our foundation. If you don't do these things, it's going to be really hard to navigate the role. Yeah. And do you believe that those are all things that can be learned and developed? I do. In fact, I strongly believe that. And I think they're not necessarily easy to develop and they take persistence and consistency and, and literally your entire career, you will be working on them. But I absolutely agree with that. And I think the one that jumps out that most people think is innate, you either have it or you don't. And it's not something that you can build upon is the good judgment. And I don't agree with that. I think we absolutely can build upon that. Now, some people just seem, again, have a talent for certain things and you start at a place further along than some other folks and that's okay. But I think you can build all of these things. And in the book, I've tried to distill it down to a couple of things that if we focus on within the context of product management, we can build Relationship building skills. We can build communication skills. We can build judgment. And again, we don't have to try to boil the ocean and be a keynote speaker. That is not necessarily what good communication means in product management. It means kind of adapting to your audience. It means being clear in your message. It means connecting with people. And that's it. There are a few things that we can do and get better at it. And absolutely, I'm a big believer that we can all improve in these areas. Yeah, I am too. I'm curious to hear if
0: that has an impact on your teaching and sort of where your students are at, especially I also teach graduate students, but I don't yet teach undergrads. And I'm curious if you see a difference in some of these skills between the two groups.
1: Yeah, so this semester is the first time we've opened it up to undergrads. But what's interesting about the product management course that I teach at Johns Hopkins is that it's one class for both. So I don't teach a grad class and an undergrad, a separate class for undergrads. So I've got undergrad students and grad students in the class together. And they're working on real life projects with real companies. So, of course, I'm lecturing and doing all of the educating that way. But they're also getting the experience to work with a real company on a project. So they're learning that kind of practical thing. So the difference I've seen, and honestly, it's interesting, some of the undergrads are tremendously confident and communicate well and and that sort of thing. And I think that each individual is different regardless of their graduate or undergrad. I think confidence is the real thing. That is the difference between graduate students and undergrad students. And again, a couple of students who are undergrads that just seem to be more confident. And I think that's what I was talking about earlier. Some people just kind of start at a different level and there's nothing good or bad about that. But I think confidence is what folks learn over time and through experience. And so grad students are obviously a little bit older. They've been through an entire undergrad program. Some of them have done internships and worked on real teams. Some of them have even done some actual work experience where the undergrads haven't. And maybe they've done an internship, but they just don't have that experience yet. And so I think it's actually a good examination of how experience, time, time, builds confidence. And confidence actually gives you more ability to build all of these things. And so it's very interesting to see that. And I try to instill in them that these five things are things you need to build in addition to all of the other stuff I'm teaching you, but keep working on it. Don't beat yourself up if you don't feel like you're a good communicator right now. You'll get it. Just work on one thing at a time and you'll get to that point. And so it's a great question because I think at the end of the day, it just kind of boils down to confidence. And I think that's probably true for professionals out there as well.
0: Yeah, definitely. That's also a skill that grows with usage. Yeah, absolutely. And tell me more about your own podcast. What is the sort of mission of your podcast?
1: Yeah. So the podcast is called Product Voices and you've been on it. So thank you. And this is the first year. It started in 2022. And so now we're kind of um, almost at the end of 2022. And we've got, I think, 40 episodes out there. And so it's a fairly new podcast. But wanted to create just a forum for people to come talk about product, but more specifically share resources. So at the end of virtually every episode, I'll ask the guest what resources they've used to learn product management and or the specific topic we're talking about. And then we'll share those resources on productvoices.com in show notes and that sort of thing. And, you know, again, it's just one more vehicle for folks to learn from others. Because I think product management is such an ongoing learning thing. We never stop that education. And so I really just wanted to create a forum where we could have casual conversations about some topic and then share resources with each other that can maybe help along the way. Yeah, I love that very much. And it was great fun being on your podcast. Well, you were an inspiration. So I was excited to have you on because I've always loved your work and your content. So I loved having you on and I'm really pumped about being here.
0: Yay. (laughs) I'm
1: really glad.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so what do you spend most of your time doing today? Is it mostly teaching or are you doing other stuff as well?
1: It's mostly corporate work. So I teach a couple of classes and they're virtual classes now. I don't go to Baltimore, which is where Johns Hopkins is. I don't live in Baltimore. So last semester, I went to Baltimore and had in-person classes every week. And that was a little difficult logistically, just being a part-time professor. So now I do all my classes virtually and usually corporate work. I'm spending more time on that. It's again, going in and doing advising facilitation and some training and that sort of thing. And I spend quite a bit of time teaching and then mentoring the students. So I'm kind of the faculty advisor and the product management club at Johns Hopkins. So I spent a lot of time with students there. So I think if you really kind of boiled it down, a lot of my time is coaching and mentoring, whether it's someone already in the corporate world or students trying to get into the corporate world.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I love doing those things as well. So I'm happy for you that you get to spend a lot of time doing
1: that. It's very cool. And I love that you do it as well. We share that because I don't think there are a lot of programs out there right now that have product management courses. So I love that we both have the opportunity to teach folks that way.
0: Yeah. And it's exciting to see more and more of them popping up around the country. Yes, definitely. So where can people find you if they want to follow you?
1: So the best way is to go to jjrory.com slash connect. So that's J-J-R-O-R-I-E. com slash connect. And on there, you can find my website, Great Product Management. You can find all my social links. You can find the podcast. You can find out about Johns Hopkins, all kinds of stuff. So jjrory.com slash connect is the best way.
0: Awesome. All right. And we'll put that in the show notes. So if anybody wants to just browse to the link, that's an option too. Cool. Awesome. Well, JJ, thank you so much for your time today. It was really fun. Yes, it was. Holly, thank you so much. I loved the conversation. Hey, Holly here. I hope you enjoyed listening to this week's episode as much as I enjoyed making it. I wanted to share with you that at HR Product Science we run lots of workshops, and we'd love to have you join us. We teach the product science method a step-by-step process for evaluating product opportunities and laying the foundations for high growth product development. We help product leaders and startup founders identify the right products and features to build and develop the support to do so. We do this at private workshops. We also do it at public workshops, both in person and online. If you'd like to learn more, check it out at h2rproductscience.com workshops the product science podcast is brought to you by h2r product science we teach startup founders and product leaders how to use the product science method to discover the strongest product opportunities and lay the foundations for high growth products teams and businesses learn more at h2rproductscience.com Enjoying this episode? Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. I also encourage you to visit us at productsciencepodcast.com to sign up for more information and resources from me and our guests. If you like the show, a rating and review would be greatly appreciated. Thank you.